take your girlie to the movies if you can't make love at home. There's no little brother there who always squeals. You can do an awful lot in seven reels. Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 187. My name's Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing a western and a comedy. The western's from America, the comedy is from England. So they are 1958 low-budget western terror in a texas town starring sterling hayden and written by dalton trombo the blacklisted writer who's very big in the news at the moment then we go over to england for another 1958 movie uh actually it could be 1957 it is the smaller show on earth otherwise known as big time operators which has peter sellers bill travers virginia mckenna bernard miles margaret rutherford and Leslie Phillips in it. So we're going from uh, a movie about westerns to a movie about a cinema. So sit back, I'll get the contact details out of the way, and the show will start. Paleo Cinema Podcast appears every two weeks. It's a podcast of classic film appreciation. The rules are pretty easy to remember. Each episode is a talk about two movies in it, and the movies have to be over 20 years old. Apart from that, they can be of any genre. Podcasts thrive on feedback, so you can send emails or MP3 voicemails to cultguru at gmail.com. That's K-U-L-T-G-U-R-U. You can go over to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook or take a look at paleo-cinema.blogspot.com. iTunes reviews are also welcome. To support the podcast financially, you can head over to patreon.com slash paleocinema. I'd like to acknowledge the Karongjang Baluk and Mapiang Baluk people, the traditional owners of the land on which I'm recording the podcast, and pay my respects to their elders, both past and present. This podcast may contain adult words and concepts, so if you play it with small children around, expect to answer some uncomfortable questions later. Hi, how's everybody going? Um, it's kind of winter here almost, and yet it's still warm. Global warming is really hitting Australia at the moment, and we're getting unseasonably warm weather with occasional cold, wet spots. And we know that a cold, wet spot's not a good thing. Uh, so everybody's a, a little bit concerned about it, uh, rightly so. And they're almost as concerned about it as they are about the fact that we're going to have a federal election in July. And uh, all of the kind of resultant kerfuffle with that. So interesting times we live in and hopefully Australia will be wiser than it was last time. So let's just say that. Um, Yeah, the other thing is, and I've calculated this out using the wonders of the internet. Around the 20th of November 2016, Paleo Cinema Podcast hits 200 episodes. And a week later... Martian Drive-In Podcast hits 100 episodes. So I'm not sure what I'm going to do about that. I mean, obviously, you've got to celebrate these kind of landmarks because in the world of the internet, these things matter. And, of course, it's you know, a bit of an achievement to hit do 300 episodes of the two podcasts. So let me know what you think I should do about it. Uh, you can drop an email to cultguru at gmail.com you can throw something at me in Facebook uh, I can block you if you're an asshole. but uh, please tell me what you think I should do for the 200th episode of Paleo Cinema or the 100th episode of the Martian Drive-In Podcast because I'm inclined to celebrate apart from the fact that they happen Sally's birthday is a day after I record the Paleo Cinema 200th episode. So it's, it's going to be a very celebratory week there. Um, you know, let me know what you think I should do. I've got no fucking idea at the moment. And I'm open to ideas. I am a river to my people. And um, I'd love to hear what people think we should do. Uh, so yeah, uh, I should open up the letterbox and see what I've been watching. I've got a fair idea because I did it myself. But I'll just open the letterbox. Uh, some interesting movies coming out soon. I'm looking forward to Doctor Strange, of course. Um, I found it very interesting as well to see that 90% of the cast of the Black Panther movie, when it comes out, again, another Marvel Cinematic Universe movie, are going to be either African-American or African people. So that's kind of interesting and kind of cool as well. So what have I been watching um, since last week? Now, Liz Travaskis and I on the ABC local radio Northern Territory gig that I am so lucky to be doing have decided we're going to do about eight weeks of political movies, which means we get four movies in because we do it every fortnight. So the first one I chose is not 
in a direct sense a political movie, but for me it's a very important American political movie from 1957, and that is Elia Kazan's A Face in the Crowd, starring Andy Griffith and Patricia Neal. Now, Liz and I watched it, and we both enjoyed it thoroughly, and it's got a lot of parallels to Donald Trump, as the um, commentariat have said. And, yeah, it's a cautionary tale about television's ability to manipulate politics and politics' ability to become the whore of television. And, you know, of course, this was nearly 60 years ago now. So it's a very, very um, kind of prophetic movie. And it's one I enjoy a lot. First movie role for Andy Griffiths, and from my point of view, his best movie role. And um, I really, I've talked about it in a previous Paleo Cinema podcast way back in the day. And we're heading up towards 10 years of Paleo Cinema, by the way, in case you were not keeping count. And uh, yeah, it's one of those movies that I want to talk about on the podcast again, because I, I think I could bring something fresh to it. But Liz and I really enjoyed it, and it was a good political movie to start with. The next one we're doing in a week and a half's time is an Australian movie about an election night, and that is the movie based on David Williamson's play, Don's Party. I'm looking forward to revisiting that movie. It should be a lot of fun. It's got a good, solid Australian cast. Graham Kennedy's in it, John Hargreaves, Ray Barrett, a bunch of other people. Um, yeah, I'm, it's going to be interesting to kind of revisit that movie during our federal election campaign, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And then I'll just have to find two more political movies to for Liz and I to talk about. I think I'm going going to try Advising Consent, which is one of my favourite American political movies of the 1960s, and then we'll find another one after that. So it should be a lot of fun to do that. And um, I kind of like themes when we're doing that gig, because apart from the fact it gets people to listen to the next time I talk about things with Liz, but um, it makes it easier to pick the movies, because sometimes Liz and I go, well, what do you want to watch now? I don't know. What do you want to watch now? But this kind of gives us a solid background and it makes that job of selecting the movies, which is always a problem with podcasts or radio gigs about movies. What are you going to talk about? Which is why one of the things with the Patreon campaign is that people suggest movies. It helps with that process. And after nearly 300 episodes of the two podcasts, I can use all the help I can get. So um, we we did that, and I really enjoyed it. It was great rewatching the movie as well. By the way, it's up on YouTube. Full movie, a face in the crowd. Type that into YouTube, and you can watch it on your great big enormous billiard table sized smart TV if you want to. But uh, so I watched that, and uh, it kind of it's one of those movies that refreshes you for watching movies. Now another movie I watched that I may well do in about. 2019 when it becomes 20 years old is the Michael E film Topsy Turvy from 1999 which is a a great film about Gilbert and Sullivan and about the making of the Mikado by Gilbert and Sullivan fantastic English cast and I've got it on DVD and I've watched it a few times and even though I'm not the biggest um, Gilbert and Sullivan fan in the world I found the movie fascinating and uh, really did um, have a great time with it. Uh, Ella Kuduna's in it, Jim Burabend playing Gilbert. Uh, the supporting cast is really fantastic as well. Uh, Leslie Manville's in it. Uh, let's see, Timothy Spall, Dexter Fletcher, Shirley Henderson, Kevin McKidd. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's definitely one to see, but I'm looking forward to, in about two years' time, being able to talk about that on Paleo Cinema Podcast. It's... Um, it's a movie worth treasuring. Uh, let's see, what else did I watch? I went outside my comfort zone and watched a really weird 1987 children's film, sort of, from Japan called The Drifting Classroom, which is about a school, an English language school in Kobe in Japan, which gets thrown into a post-apocalyptic future, and the kids have got to try to survive in the future. The parents, are, of course, are devastated that their kids have disappeared and there's this enormous hole in the ground where their school used to be. It's um, very weird in a lot of places. A lot of kids die in this movie, and um, not necessarily in nice ways. But nonetheless, it's based on a um, manga. Uh, but it was kind of interesting to watch it. And the weirdest thing about it, amongst many, many weird things in the film, is that Troy Donahue plays one of the teachers. So that's um, kind of a, a real fucking head trip. 
of a film. The special effects are pretty good for 1987. This is pre-CGI, of course. And the budget, because the budget wasn't enormously, fantastically large, um, they kind of had to make do with a lot of um, practical effects. But if you're interested in that kind of film, The Drifting Classroom is kind of an interesting one to look at. It does seem to drag in places and kind of beds down in its own melancholy but um, it wasn't a waste of time at all. Now, the only other thing I want to talk about that I've watched is an Australian film from 2015 starring Simon Pegg as a black-clad hitman, and it's Kill Me Three Times. It's also got um, one of the Hemsworth brothers in it, and it's not Liam and it's not Chris, it's the other one, uh, and a bunch of other Australian character actors who have done a number of other things. Set on the coast of Western Australia, um, north of Perth. It's a part of Western Australia I haven't been to yet, but I'm interested to drive up there at some stage next time I'm in Perth. I want to kind of explore north of Perth. Most people go south where Margaret River and the wineries and all of the um, agricultural areas are and some nice little towns as well. But I'm interested in kind of driving north from Perth along the coast and checking out some of those tiny little towns that are up there. Uh, Location's great, but um, it ends in blood. <laughs> it really ends in a lot of blood. Pretty much most of the cast get killed during the course of the movie. It's got Brian Brown, in it, the great Australian iconic actor Brian Brown, playing a corrupt copper um, and doing a pretty good job of it as well. Uh, it's, check it out if you like it. It's kind of like a maybe a... If I was scoring it, I'd say it was like a six, which I don't score anyway. So it just gives you an idea in this one case. I'm going to break that one rule for one moment. But um, because it's an Australian film, because it came up on cable, I thought I'd check it out. And yeah, it's a bit of fun. It's very stylized, and um, every character has a hidden agenda in their lives are interwoven in weird ways. But um, seeing Simon Pegg get hit with a sledgehammer a few times is kind of interesting. And watching him with a high-powered sniper rifle popping people off uh, in a role which is kind of slightly comedic, but isn't in his usual style of comedy. Uh, yeah, it's it's worth checking out anyway. But anyway, that's about it for the stuff I have been watching. Apart from that, I've been doing a lot of Xbox, which is horribly and, and nastily addictive and takes me away from movies way too much, but I enjoy doing it. Anyway, I'm going to take a break now, but before I, uh, during the break, I'm going to play you a song which I picked up on vinyl. Now, this song has a story with me that goes back to the 1970s. I'm going to play the song first and then tell you the story. It's Last Tango in Paris, sung by 1970s Australian female sex symbol, Abigail. Making love, not by choice, but by chance To a theme that we tore from the past To a tango we swore was the last We don't exist We are nothing but shadow and mist In the mirror we look as we pass Reflections revealed in the glass Don't you know that the blood in your veins Is as lifeless as yesterday's rain It's a game where we come to conceal The confusion we feel Long as we're nameless Our bodies are blameless You cried when we kissed It was nothing but shadow and mist Making love not by choice but by chance To a thing that we tore from the past To a tango we swore was the last We are shadows who dance 
why Abigail was uh, an actor rather than a singer. But uh, the interesting thing, and my history with that particular single, which was released by Festival in 1973, I think it was, is that I was obsessed with Abigail and I wanted to um, get a copy of the single and I had no money. I was a callow and um, poor youth at the time. So I pinched it from a um, Woolworths store in Liverpool, New South Wales, where I was living. And it was the first bit of shoplifting I ever did. And one of the few bits of shoplifting I ever did. I should kind of clarify that as well. But um, years and years later, which maybe five years ago, I was cruising through eBay and I found that somebody was selling the same single because I'd lost it over the years, many, many years. And so I picked it up quite cheaply on eBay and now I have a copy of it and now I'm sharing it with you. So I have a weird history of it. The other side, uh, that was, of course, last tango in Paris, Gato Barbieri's music and Dory Previn's lyrics. On the other side is her English language version of Serge Gainsbourg's Je T'aime, which was the hit single in Australia at the time of this particular um, single. People listened to Je T'aime, but nobody listened to Last Tango in Paris, which was on the flip side. So if you go online, you can actually find Je T'aime and Abigail's version of it online. But nowhere on the interwebs can you find a copy of her version of Last Tango in Paris, which I have now shared with you. So um, on with the show uh, after that little piece of musical nostalgia, which only people like our friend Morris from Love That Album would appreciate. Uh, Yeah, I'm going to do these movies in kind of reverse order from the way I was going to do them. And at first, I'm going to speak about the smaller show on Earth, otherwise known as big-time operators in America. Maybe not so they wouldn't get confused with the worst movie ever to win the Best Picture Oscar, The Greatest Show on Earth, the Cecil B. DeMille movie from 1952. The movie's one of those, it's almost like an Ealing comedy, but it isn't by Ealing. It's one of those kind of small comedies that kind of thumbs its nose at the establishment and um, has kind of characters who are lovable eccentrics. Um, and it's, it's working class in a way as well, which is, makes it even more interesting. Uh, the story's fairly simple. Um, Matt and Jean, played by um, Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna, are a young couple and they want to visit exotic places like Samarkand. One day, Matt inherits a cinema from his great-uncle. When they look over the new property, they first mistake the modern grand cinema in town, in the town for it. They are soon disillusioned to learn that the movie theatre they actually own is the old, decrepit Bijou Kinema, nicknamed the Flea Pit, which is located next to a railway bridge. Along with the theatre come three long-term employees, Mrs. Fazakley, Margaret Rutherford, the cashier and the bookkeeper, Mr. Quill, Peter Sellers, the projectionist, and old Tom Bernard Miles, the janitor, doorkeeper, and usher. Um, Leslie Phillips plays Robin, their solicitor, who informs them that the Grand's owner, Mr. Hardcastle, um, played by a great character actor, Francis de Wolf, has offered to buy the Bijou Cinema from Matt's grand-uncle for £5,000 in order to construct a car park for his nearby cinema. When they see their competitor, however, he only offers them 500 thinking they have no choice but to accept. Instead, on Robin's advice, they pretend to want to reopen the Bijou in order to force Hardcastle to raise his offer. At first, they seem to be succeeding, but then old Tom accidentally lets slip their overheard plans, and Hardcastle refuses to budge. 
They decide to carry on with the bluff and go through with the opening. After a few mishaps, the business flourishes, especially after Matt hires the curvaceous Marlene Hogg, played by um, a quite a buxom lady called June Cunningham, to sell ice creams and other treats at the interval. So that's basically the setup there, and I've kind of paraphrased a little bit from the Wikipedia. It's a story of some people who inherit a small cinema in um, an industrial town in the north of England called Slowborough, where the only factory they have there is a glue factory. So the whole town stinks of animal carcasses being turned into glue. The, the town's smoky and small and parochial, and and the couple are kind of London sophisticates. Jean and Matt are from London. He's trying to be a writer. She's the kind of doting housewife. Interesting thing about it is that Bill Travers and Virginia McKenna were married in real life right up until Travers' death. They got married in the year this movie was made. And so they've got that kind of couple rapport that really kind of makes this work, even though uh, Virginia Kenner, uh, in my opinion, was a much better actor than Bill Travers was. She was in a couple of great films like A Town Like Alice and Carve Her Name with Pride, where she was rightly nominated for some awards and won a couple of them. Um, Bill Travers is kind of a big hulking guy. He was um, in intelligence during the war, and he was known for being playing big strapping fellas. Uh, the big movie that Virginia Ken- McKenna and Bill Travis did that made a lot of money and was very, very popular at the time, was made in 1966 when they made Born Free, the one about Elsa the Lioness, and it was filmed on location in Africa, and they had Matt Munro singing the theme song, and it was crazily popular in the cinema. That's the kind of you know, big movie that these two made now, Virginia McKenna and Bill Travers, right up until Travers' death near the end of the last century were animal rights activists. In fact, she still is an animal rights activist to this very day. So they're kind of very invested in that, and they were doing it before Born Free was made, in, in fact. So they're, they're kind of like the um, ingenue couple of the piece. Then we have Margaret Rutherford as Mrs. Fazakerly. Peter Sellers playing way older than he was at the time as Percy Quill, the projectionist. Bernard Miles, who wasn't as old as his character, old Tom either. Uh, we have Francis de Wolfe playing Albert Harcastle, who's one of those big, hulking, bearded English character actors. Uh, if you type Francis de Wolfe into Wikipedia or something like that, you'll find a picture of him. Um, he's kind of got that capitalistic North of England character down pat with the thick accent and the blustery kind of nature of uh, certain kind of entrepreneurial men from the North of England. Um, Leslie Phillips, of course, playing pretty much a Leslie Phillips role as Robin Carter, their solicitor. And Leslie Phillips, um, lovely character. He's still around, unfortunately, had a stroke a couple of years ago, so he's probably, unfortunately, not going to be with us much longer. But uh, I'm taking a risk actually mentioning him in a podcast because when I did that with Peter O'Toole, he dropped dead. So I'm just keeping my eye on Leslie Phillips over the next few months. Uh, Sid James turns up, in fact, as one scene playing Marlene Hogg's father. Um, some interesting things happen with Marlene uh, selling ice creams in the stalls during the intermission of the, um, the cinema thing. And people used to do that. I remember when I was a kid going to the Regal Cinema in Liverpool, there were ice cream people at the front and you get um, a little um, kind of bucket of ice cream with a plastic, with a, no, a, a wooden paddle, a little tiny wooden paddle to eat the ice cream with. Um, and they were very popular and the other person in the movie of of any notice at all is Stringer Davis playing Emmett one of uh, Albert Haas Castle's um, kind of henchmen and Stringer Davis is interesting for his association because he was a long-term husband of Margaret Rutherford and whenever Margaret Rutherford would get a role she'd say is there anything in there for Stringer and Stringer Davis would turn up in the movie at some point along with Margaret Rutherford inevitably um, Stringer Davis very nice guy he was actually three years younger than his wife and they were a couple 15 years before they got married she was um, in her mid she was actually 53 when they got married though they'd been together 15 years before that and the reason they didn't get married earlier was that Stringer Davis's mum didn't like Margaret Rutherford. And so they waited for his mum to drop dead before they got married. That was the sort of shit that people went through in those days, of course. Now, this movie is a lot of fun. It's a kind of gentle, fun, and at 
in the end of it, a moral comedy, and I'll explain that, but I'll do a spoiler at the end of this. Um, and the Bijou Cinema is fantastic too. They actually um, built this set on location. Now, there's a kind of wide junction where two railway bridges part somewhere in London, and they built this tiny little ramshackled, worn-out cinema in the wide, in the fork of that wide junction. So whenever trains go past, and express trains went past blowing their whistles and things, the whole cinema would shake and there'd be a loud whistle blowing and train rumbling noises. It's the worst location you could possibly imagine to put a cinema in. And the Bijou Kinema, it's spelled with a K in the, in the movie, is right there on that wide junction, kind of forked in between the two overhead railway bridges. It's just the, the shittiest place to build a cinema, and it's a tiny little thing too, hence the name The Smallest Show on Earth. It's a tiny little cinema. The lobby area is small. Um, the, it might seat like 50 or 60 people at the most, and the sets they built are lovely for this thing. They've got um, accommodation for the couple... Uh, on in the cinema building itself and the cinema is, is a lovely piece of work the set design on it is perfect it's just a rundown kind of silent era cinema that kind of lurched into the sound era and kept going until uh, the grand uncle of Matt Spencer the Bill Travis character died and they inherited this rat infested broken down cinema with projectors that work intermittently at best and rip this film two or three times during a session it's just everything that can go wrong with a cinema has gone wrong with this place um old bill is uh, old tom sorry is really unhappy because he never got a nice usher's uniform the way that the guy who is the usher at the grand does um Percy Quill, the Peter Sellers character, and P Peter Sellers basically plays him like one of the characters from the Goon Show. He puts on one of his Goon Show accents to play Percy Quill, who's an alcoholic and is drunk most of the time, but is the only person who knows how to make these cantankerous pair of projectors they've got for the cinema actually work. And then we have Mrs. Fazakley, who was um, Matt's granduncle's girlfriend and uh, that's that's kind of funny in itself with margaret rutherford playing it uh all the three of them all three of the characters who work at the cinema say they don't like each other they've got bitching and moaning they've had years and years of grievances against each other and in come the young couple that try to deal with this gene and matt and they suddenly get bombarded with these passive aggressive statements about each of the other people in there but ultimately none of them want the other person to get the sack they just want to bitch and moan about them and have somebody say harsh words to them about the things that are going on it's um, a lovely bit of character writing as well the script was written by some very experienced comedy writers frank launder and cindy gillett uh, who had done any number of things. Um, they were involved with the Centrinians movies. Uh, some more serious things as well, but uh, the thing that uh, particularly Frank Launder is mostly known for is the Centrinians movies, about which I have spoken on previous podcasts. Well, uh, in fact, Sidney Gillett did that as well. They were both involved with those movies. So, in a sense, this smaller show on Earth may have been like a training ground for the kind of anarchic silliness of the Centrinians movies. Uh, the movie was directed by Basil Dearden, a very long-term and um, good uh, English film director. Didn't do a hell of a lot, but he did some interesting works. He did things like Violent Play Playground, a gritty crime thriller from 1958, which had Stanley Baker in it. He did The League of Gentlemen as well. Um, Victim, he directed that. A 1961 movie about persecution of gay people, which I've really got to do on a podcast. Uh, All Night Long, that one with um, Patrick McGowan in it. The Mindbenders 1963 movie, which I think I've done on a previous podcast. As well, uh, Cartoon the one with Laurence Olivier and Charlton Heston in it, and the Assassination Bureau, amongst other things. So he had a very long career. Um, David Thompson, the theatre critic, said that Dearden's films are decent, empty and plotting, and his association with Michael Rolfe is a fair representative of the British preference for bureaucratic cinema. It stands for the underlining of obvious meaning. So... Um, 
So basically, Basil Dearden wasn't um, kindly looked upon by the critics. And yeah, he his direction is kind of... I think we needed somebody with a little more oomph to really make this movie soar. But the situation and the plot itself are pretty much the the fun in this film. And, and the character actors bumping into each other. Uh, the young couple think they're going to inherit a, a large cinema in a, in a provincial town, but get bitterly disappointed and they think they're going to sell it and travel which is what they want to do with their lives and go to Samarkand now the interesting thing is that ultimately they decide they're going to Samarkand which in itself is a joke because Samarkand is actually in Uzbekistan and so for somebody in 1957-1958 to go to Samarkand basically they'd be going into the Soviet Union to do it and because of this because it sounds exotic, of course, everybody thinks, oh, this is wonderful, but what they're actually going to be doing is going behind the Iron Curtain. But this movie is pretty much one of those English comedies of manners. You've got the um, powerful people, including Harcastle, who work at the Grand, trying to tread the little man into the dirt. You've got the kind of cantankerous people who have been at the Bijou Cinema since... It was a silent movie cinema. In fact, there's a very touching scene toward the end where an old silent movie is um, shown in the cinema after hours by the three of them, by um, Percy Quill, Old Tom and Mrs. Fazakley. And Mrs. Fazakley plays the piano for this silent movie, which is an actual silent film they had um, chosen to be in the film. And uh, the interesting thing about that is it's a real film. And... Margaret Rutherford was a fine pianist and played the piano for that piece of the movie. And it's one of those touching things which teaches Gene and Matt who want to sell this thing off and, and kind of get the hell out of there as soon as they can. Shows them how important the cinema is to the community and how the three cantankerous old people who work there have an enormous emotional investment in it. So the, the movie's got some nice grace notes in it as well. Uh, there are a couple of bits that kind of jar to our modern sensibilities. The bit with uh, when Gene attempts to be the ice cream lady in the cinema and gets felt up by all the guys when they're buying ice creams, which doesn't play very well to a modern audience for f um, quite obvious reasons. But when they hire... Um, Marlene Hogg, played by June Cunningham, who was actually a um, pin-up model, amongst other things. It was in, actually in um, Horror of the Black Museum, which I mentioned in a recent Martian Driving podcast. June Cunningham's Marlene, who's um, what used to be known as a bit of a tart, doesn't mind getting felt up by attractive young men, so when she's selling ice creams, it's really no problem for her. She's immensely popular in doing that, which then leads to the intervention by her father, played by Sid James. But that doesn't kind of play well to a modern audience, and um, it's understandable why that uh, kind of behaviour is not accepted. But the interesting thing I really liked about the movie is it's showing crazy old westerns because you know obviously they don't have the money to get the new films in, so they, they show kind of old westerns. And one of the ways that they decide they're going to make money on it is to turn up the heat in the cinema so people buy lots of soft drinks and ice creams in the cinema and so they show westerns almost exclusively and the titles of the movie which are fictional are things like killer riders of wyoming and mystery of hell valley and devil riders of parched point so they turn up the heating in the um in the cinema sell tons of ice creams and teenagers come in to neck in the cinema but also to watch the cinema and they kind of come become involved in it because they're all waiting for the film to break down which it inevitably does during every session and they're kind of you know basically turning going to this decrepit little old cinema into an event for themselves yes they could go to the big cinema across the road and kind of have the um, ushers tell them what to do and things like that or they could enjoy and embrace the kind of tatty anarchy of the Bijou Cinema. And what they choose to do is do that. They could, and also the tickets are cheaper, which is always a consideration with young people. And I really like that kind of little bit of observation there where it's not, and, and of course there are older people who go there who have always gone to the Bijou as well. But most of the audience seems to be rowdy teenagers because they kind of embrace the silliness and the, and the randomness 
of the cinema and um that stays true. I mean, that's, that's actually true to my experience of a cinema because the cinemas I went to were the ones showing B and C grade movies in the 1970s and were just trying to show exploitation films in order to keep going, whereas um, the big top-of-the-town cinemas in the city were showing all of the great big tentpole movies, things like The Towering Inferno and um, Poseidon Adventure and before that um, all of the big blockbusters of the 1960s so I've got I'm predisposed to loving the Bijou as a concept because it was kind of true to my first formative experience of cinemas and I kind of like a movie that's about a cinema too I mean yeah, I'm surprised I hadn't got to this movie before and in fact before yesterday, even though I had a copy of it, which I picked up crazily cheaply, um, I'd never had watched the film. And I, I like it. Um, it's not perfect, and I think that, yeah, Basil Dearden's direction kind of doesn't take things as far as they might have been taken by a more kind of more, less um, kind of orthodox director, somebody who embraced the randomness and weirdness of this film. And um, just run with it. Now, I'm going to get into spoiler territory now when I wrap this up. The spoiler is that old Tom having let out of the bag the fact that they were actually trying to pump up the price for Hardcastle to buy the Bijou and to make the car park entrance for the Grand. He, he accidentally says it to the usher of the Grand while they're having a drink in the pub. Tom decides he's going to make it right. So what he does is he gets some of the fuel oil running the generator for the Bijou Cinema because it's that kind of cinema where the the whole thing's running on um, diesel generators. Takes a um, great big um, drum of that and burns down the Grand Cinema. And they're making it look like it's their generator that actually did it. So, of course, Hardcastle can't show his movies. So he has to buy the Bijou in order to have a cinema until the Grand gets rebuilt. And so they um, get a decent price for the cinema. They uh, give a, a pension to the three older people who used to work there. They make enough money to go travelling. And right at the end... When they're on their train, heading back to London, on their way to Samarkand, old Tom makes an oblique comment to them, suggesting that he'd actually committed arson in order to get them everybody what they needed to um, go the way they want to go. And that's the whole. That's what I mean about it being an amoral film. Basically, the happiness of the, all the characters in the film depends on um, a case of arson and a kind of doddery old guy who commits it. And again, this is that kind of transgressive thing that a lot of these English comedies of the time had. They were very much against the status quo and very much against authority. And authority in this kind of way is represented by Mr. Harcastle and his great big Cinerama-type cinema with his uniforms and... Um, up-to-the-date equipment and all that kind of thing. And it turns out that ultimately Hardcastle's got to show his movies in the ratty old bijou until his new cinema is built. So it's it's very much in that kind of style of thumbing your nose at the bosses that has been a part of English cinema almost from the start. But uh, it's a lovely little film. And interestingly enough, last year it was made into a stage musical in England, the um, smaller show on earth. And they used Irving Berlin's music as the music for this musical stage production. If you go onto YouTube, you'll see a trailer for the stage production of the smaller show on earth, which has, amongst other people, which is quite interesting, Lisa Goddard. Now, nobody outside of Australia really knows who Lisa Goddard was. But people of a certain age in Australia know her because she played the one female in the TV series of Skippy the Bush Kangaroo, uh, a girl called Clancy. And Lisa Goddard was actually in the stage production musical of The Smaller Show on Earth. There's your Australian connection for those who care. But anyway, just to wrap it up, see it, um, it's a lesser Peter Sellers role. It's also a lesser um, Margaret Rutherford role. But... It's a sweet little film, and it's about cinema, so you've got to love that. 
Anyway, I'm going to take another break, and when I get back, we're going to talk about a very atypical small-budget western from 1958, Terror in a Texas Town, starring Sterling Hayden, and written by Dalton Trumbo. They say the world doesn't have heroes anymore? Well, damn them, Max. You and me, we're going to give them back their heroes. Hi, this is Fifi McAfee from Mad Max. And you are listening to Paleo Cinema. Enjoy. Hey, you better stop to think what you're saying. You'd better hold on. Make sure you're sold on letting me go. Letting me go. Make sure you know you want us to part. You think because your heart's flying high now He won't deceive you But he's gonna leave you Don't be misled Think with your head and not with your heart Use your head Use your head Just for a minute Yes, it better Better turn around what's in it Yes, it better Better use your head Before it's too late And I'm Better use your head to tell you Not the one who should tell you You think I'm lying You think I'm trying hard To hold on Hard to hold on Putting you on to fool with your mind But he's been all over town Telling people he's gonna get you And he will let you go when he's through When he's through Pity for you when he leaves you behind That was Use Your Head by Mel Torme, which I believe, and I'm willing to be corrected on this, was the love theme from Deep Throat. But anyway, let's move on to Terror in a Texas Town. Now, Sterling Hayden, the actor, who I mentioned because he was also in the Stanley Kubrick movie The Killing, which I talked about three podcasts ago, was an interesting actor. He basically took jobs in Hollywood in the 1950s to finance going away and sailing his ship across the oceans, or sailing his boat across the oceans. His boat was called The Wanderer, and he's written a couple of really nice books about it. In fact, I'm looking at Wanderer, one of his books about traveling on the sea, and, and how he, amongst other things, did it to avoid the House on American Activities Committee, which is very relevant to Terror in a Tiny Town. Oh, Terror in a Texas Town. Terror in a Tiny Town was the one with, that was that midget western, but Terror in a Texas Town. So I'll play the trailer from that. Um, most of it's music and gunfighting, but there is some dialogue in there as well. And then I'll talk about why I find this such a really interesting film. I've ever met anyone like him before. 
That's because you've never seen death walking around in the shape of a man before. That's right. Death. It's in his blood. Why do you stay with a man like this? I stay with him because I'm what I am. I stay with him because no other man would have me. I stay with him because as low as I am, I can turn around and see him and remember there's somebody lower. came here to see blood why don't you bring them a little closer close so they can see it huh just one step just close enough so you can get a fair chance with that meat hook so terror in texas town is a low budget 1958 american western um which was made for a budget of £80,000. Uh, $80, what am I saying? Pounds. $80,000. But it's gritty. It's like a Western film noir, and it's hardly surprising that it's filmed like that because the director of the film was um, somebody known for some very good film noir, and that's Joseph H. Lewis, who did one of the great films noir from my point of view. Uh, three years before he made this movie, and that's the big combo with um, Richard Conti, among other people in it. So he basically filmed this like a character piece film noir. Now, the writers uh, in this film are quite interesting. Basically, uh, Ben Perry fronted for the actual writer of the film, Dalton Trumbo. Now, the cast is, is interesting as well. Sterling Hayden plays George Hansen, a Swedish immigrant whose father runs a farm, and he's a, a sailor. He, he's a merchant seaman and travels around the world um, and comes back home to find that his father's been killed and that a rich ra- a rancher called Ed McNeil, played by Sebastian Cabot, who people know from uh, mostly from a family family affair, that really bad 1960s television series with Brian Keith in it. Now, Ed McNeil has hired Johnny Crail, played by um, Ned Young, Nedrick Young, a, a gunfighter to kind of get everybody out of this valley that he wants. Now, we don't at first know the reason why he wants all the land in the valley. He says the people are squatters, but because law is so far away, he can pretty much make things up as he likes. He's got um, the local sheriff in his pocket. He's got all of the tough guys in town, but everybody else, the small landholders, are scared of him, hence the name Terror in a Texas town. Now, Ned Young's Johnny Crail is a really interesting character. He's a left-handed gunslinger. He's ageing, and he's it's at that time when gunslingers and lawlessness was being was ending in the west now the reason johnny crail is a left-handed gun is somebody blew his right hand off in a gunfight and he has a steel hand basically a chunk of steel uh in the shape of a hand for his right hand now along with johnny crail is his girlfriend molly played by carol kelly and the other people in the town pretty much are mona stacy who plays um, Ed McNeil's girlfriend and a bunch of ranchers, including um, Victor Millian, playing Jose Murata, a Mexican guy who's been, his family's been there for hundreds of years, and um, Frank Ferguson playing another one of the ranchers. So basically, here's this story. Um, George Hansen's father has been killed by Johnny Crail, and... Hanson doesn't know this at the start. When he first comes into town, he meets Johnny Crail, who doesn't seem entirely unfriendly. And the reason for this is Crail is a complex character. Now, the movie starts with the the killer. This is why the kind of differentiation between this and a standard Western. This could have been done just as a standard Western. But we see most of the movie movie is told in flashback because at the start we see Sterling Hayden, Hayden marching down through the main street of town the town's called Prairie City, with a whaling harpoon in his hand. And he comes up, and you only see the bad guy 
from behind and shot from the neck down. And we get a bit of dialogue there asking him to come in closer so that he gets a go with that meat hook, that, that bit of audio that we've got in the trailer. And we know that the movie's going to end with George Hansen with a, a wailing harpoon going up against a gunslinger in the, t- in the main street of this town. So we've got that set up right at the start. Then the movie does something kind of interesting. Uh, apart from the fact that it's got a really minimalist soundtrack, which is mostly trumpet and guitar, uh, it doesn't have that kind of lush, layered soundtrack that you get with most 1950s westerns, which were done on a much larger budget. But um, the movie then discards George for a period of time and lets us get to know the bad guys, which I've, and also George's father, and the Murata family who live on live as neighbours to um, Mr. Hansen's farm. So the movie does that kind of in, in an interesting way. It humanises the villains and makes them comprehensible. And because this is a Dalton Trumbo script, everybody speaks in a very literate way. And there's almost a kind of beat poetry to the way they speak at times, which makes it a really kind of interesting film from that point of view as well. And uh, the title sequence comes up on the film after that little bit at the start with George and his harpoon, where it shows a whole bunch of outlaws burning down farmhouses and the faces of the farmers. There's a lot of close-ups. Um, the film's in black and white, of course, because it's it's a fairly low-budget 1950s movie. But there are some really nice character shots of the distressed faces of the farm family as these, their farms are burnt down. So we know right at the start what's at stake, that this is having a big impact on a number of people. Um, Lewis also does a number of interesting camera angles because the um, the town set seems to be quite limited. and It may well have only been a, a smallish um, outdoor set for a town. And so Lewis compensates by doing some interesting camera angles to kind of cover for that. Um, and then we kind of meet... Ed McNeil, which always sounds like a working-class name, but the guys played by fastidious and posh and well-dressed Sebastian Cabot. We're seeing meeting prawns and lobster, um, which were packed in ice and shipped up from the Gulf of Mexico, and drinking champagne. Now, Sebastian Cabot does another weird, slightly weird thing in this film, in that he seems to be, at times be channeling Sydney Green Street. And he does those kind of little Sydney Green Street chuckles and and kind of plays it like it's a Sydney Green Street role, which makes it really interesting. So McNeil wants one example so the rest of the farmers will go. And um, Mr. Hanson Sr. is chosen to be that example, of course. And then um, Johnny Crowell goes out to the town, out of the town, and shoots Mr. Hanson, who tries to attack him with the harpoon in question. Now, that's that's part of the film. Now, the other part is the relationship between Johnny Crail and Molly, his wife, they say in the film, but could be a long-term girlfriend. That there's never that kind of differentiation made in the movie, where she's basically an abused woman. Um, he treats her badly, but she doesn't know any better. And as that bit of dialogue in the trailer says, she doesn't think, you know, she knows what she is and she kind of can't conceive of a better life than the one she has with this aging um, one-handed gunfighter who is filled with self-loathing. He really is a character that hates himself and um, is looking for a way to die in that way. Now, Nedrick Young, who uh, plays Johnny Crail, wasn't particularly known as an actor. He was more known as a writer. In fact, he was a blacklisted writer at the time he was an actor in this film. He'd done a whole bunch of other things. He'd, he'd been in House of Wax and um, The Iron Mistress, Springfield Rifle. He did Hobble on Cassidy. He had a, a bit of a career as an actor. But he was more known as a writer. And you're going to like the um, things that he wrote. He did a TV movie version of Inherit the Wind in 1999. He wrote the screen story for The Defiant Ones. He wrote the story that Jailhouse Rock was based on uh, he did both Inherit the Wind Defiant Ones, Jailhouse Rock The Train he was one of the writers from that really great movie in Europe with Burt Lancaster 
So he, he was a fine writer himself. And he doesn't particularly have the look of a gunfighter about him. He's got the look of a guy who's lived a tough life, but um, his Johnny Crail is a character who's at the end of his career and the end of his life. He knows the world's changing around him, but he doesn't have the character or the the guts to become more than a high gun. And he's it's a really fine bit of acting by him that the kind of self-loathing and, and self-knowledge at the same time that Johnny Crail has makes him a very interesting character Sterling Hayden has the least interesting role because his George Hansen is a stand-up kind of guy he knows what's right he's been around the world and he's known a number of women as he tells Molly when they're having a drink together in the bar um, but he has a strong sense of justice his moral compass is unerring and it's a simple character, and um, Hayden's voice, he has a slightly stilted voice, the way people who have English as a second language but have tried really hard to learn it sometimes do. And I just hit the microphone there. Um, and um, he's, he's got a kind of thankless role, but he has that great iconic scene of marching down the main street of Prairie City carrying a whaling harpoon i mean that's just the that's the selling point of this whole film but the movie's actually a lot more than that with these characters involved we also learn a lot about um mr Murata, the neighbor who um has a wife and some children his wife's about to have a baby his family's been in that territory for hundreds of years in fact before the alamo and things like that mexico of course owned texas so he's um and again he's another person who has that rock solid moral compass it doesn't end well for him i'll be honest with you about that but nonetheless he's there and um his he and his son actually see mr hansen senior get shot by johnny crail and so he's trying to keep his family together he's trying to keep his farm the interesting thing about the farm is he's digging a new well and finds oil there and realizes that the reason ed mcneil wants all the farms is there's oil there and this is just towards the turn of the 20th century so oil is about to become big and become very important and everybody knows it and so ed mcneil wants to get the land but the farmers once they discover that there's oil in the land find a reason to fight back and this movie's got a lot of complex themes to it as well. I mean, there's the, that um, capital versus labour thing, which is very much part of Dalton Trumbo's slightly odd socialist viewpoint. And I say slightly odd because if you see the movie Trumbo, you'll understand what I mean. Um, you've got that kind of complexity about the lives of women as well. And the character of Molly is a really interesting one because she is more complex than... The kind of role demands she wants better for her life she really kind of fed up with the man she's with and comes to realize at one stage that his um, opinion of her is what's dragging her down and she decides to leave which is uh, something that we all know people who have been in that situation in our lives and, and um, it, it adds that kind of complexity to the character which I, I really like i really like it when a movie writes more into a female role than is absolutely necessary and this movie definitely does that it's um it's a lovely piece of writing a lovely piece of acting as well um but the thing with molly is she, she wants at the start of the film she wants johnny to quit she realizes that his time has passed and wants to move on with a new kind of life that unfortunately doesn't happen and Johnny can't change his nature which is why he decides to confront George Hansen in the street instead of doing something sneaky and getting away with it he's a strong character who has an even stronger death wish and that's really interesting and um, Nedrick Young plays it really well he's kind of you know keeps his jaw tight and talks between tight lips and he's um, not a particularly tall man, and he dresses all in black. He's got the kind of prosthetic steel hand dragging him down in a way. And, um, yeah, the, the, this movie is a lovely piece. It was one of those jobs that 
Dalton Trumbo took because he couldn't get the high and big budget movie roles. But I think he gave full value in this one as well. I don't think that Trumbo was the kind of a screenwriter. And there is a, some talk around that also that Nedrick Young had some contribution to the um, the writing of the script. It's you never know with these things, particularly when they're written they're written um, on the sly. How much is whose thing? But just to be fair, we'll say Nedrick Young and Dalton Trumbo gave more to this script than it really required on an eighty thousand dollar budget movie. This this script is really lovely stuff. Um, I, I liked it. I, I liked this movie a lot. I picked it up. Um, Umbrella had a sale on. I got it for five bucks from Umbrella Entertainment. If you're in Australia, it's worth checking their website because they have some interesting older films, very cheaply at very at various times, and and this is definitely one of them. But once you see that kind of that, we still get back to that iconic central image of George Hansen in a gunfight with a whaling harpoon. And if that was all the movie was, you'd still go cool. But there's a lot more. The characters are complex, and the screenwriter or screenwriters, whichever it is, had the confidence to leave the main character out of it for the first chunk of the film so that we could get to know the bad guys. It wasn't. It isn't black and white. There are kind of shades of grey to the bad guys. And that makes things much more satisfying in, in this kind of a film. Westerns are a genre that can become very cliche very fast. But to bring kind of real writing and um, real character studies into a Western on an $80,000 budget in 1958 is a wonderful and admirable thing. So I'm going to leave it there. Um, it's time to say tatars, as we should say when I was a child. And thank you again for listening. Um, I really appreciate it. I like doing these two smaller films because they, even though they're kind of unknown, and by the way, this one you can get on YouTube. Terror in a Texas Town you can find on YouTube if you look around or other places. And I recommend that you do so. It's, um, it's well worth checking out. So thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another Martian Drive-In podcast in two weeks with another Paleo Cinema podcast. In the meantime, look after yourselves. Take care. Watch really bad films that you love and really good films that you're not quite sure about. Uh, that's always a good combination. Uh, I'll, as I said, I'll be back soon, but uh, take care of yourselves. And as usual, thank you to the Patreon subscribers who are uniformly wonderful. And I've just spent this month's tranche of Patreon money on some really cool movies. I've got a Blu-ray of Passport to Pimlico on the way uh, and a couple of other interesting bits and pieces I'm getting from Umbrella Entertainment. And no, they don't give me a discount. I just think that they put out some really good product. Um, and thank you to the Patreon subscribers. As usual, here are the credits. In the style of movie credits, I've still got to add a couple to the end of it, and I apologise for that. But I will get it done before the next Martian Drive-In podcast in a week. So take care of yourselves. My thoughts are with you, and watch good and bad movies, and um, take care. And stick around after the Patreon credits, because I'm going to put another song there, just to keep you through the credits. See you soon. And now, here are the podcast credits. I'd like to thank Tom, our focus puller, Sarah, our special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, our Technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, our musical director, Jan, our dialect coach, Armin, our key grip, Matt, um, our rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, the wardrobe mistress, Tansy, our foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tamora, the donut wrangler, Tim, the New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, Steve Solomon, our werewolf consultant, Dylan, the goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, and the two extras, Mark D. and David L. Thank you to all of the podcast supporters.
the lights. Lovers on the front porch have set their nighty nights. Still the empty streets I pace. In the mist, I see his face. Gotta walk, gotta walk, can't sleep. The nightingale's on cue. He sings his lonely song. The crickets take a chorus while an old owl hums along. It's a midnight symphony bringing back his voice to me. Gotta walk, gotta walk, can't sleep. Though all is darkness, I see more clearly. What a fool I was to say goodbye. There's no mistaking, I love him dearly. As sure as the stars in the sky, the whisper of a breeze leaves of sycamore tells me that he's left me. I'll see him never more, and there's nothing I can do. Cause he's found somebody new. Gotta walk, gotta walk, can't sleep. <laughs> Tells me that he's left me. I'll see him never more. And there's nothing I can do. Cause he's found somebody new. Gotta walk, gotta walk, can't sleep. Gotta walk, gotta walk, can't sleep. Gotta walk. Gotta walk.